Good evening. Let's begin once again tonight in the, the first letter of John. I'm going to look tonight uh, particularly at chapter 2 and, and verse 2. Historically kind of a tricky passage that a lot of people don't quite know what to do with. It's one that gets brought up to me a lot in one-on-one -on -one time. As people are saying, man, what, you know, people have brought this to me and asked me about it, kind of where are we at on this and what does Scripture have to say. And the good news is, as we've said over the last several weeks looking at the first letter of John as we begin to dive in, that the key to understanding the first letter, the first epistle of John is understanding the Gospel of John. And if you're going to reference, cross-reference, uh, out of 1 John, there is no better place to do it than the Gospel. So tonight in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, absolute propitiation. But before we get there, just a moment to kind of get everybody back up to speed. I know we've We've had uh, some time away here from 1 John. And so as John writes this letter, he writes proclaiming the message of the Gospel. A message that was manifesting the Christ who he and the other apostles had seen and heard and touched. He'd been speaking of this from the very beginning all the way across time down now to nearly the end of his life, even today down to us in order that we may have, John says, fellowship with Him and along with Him, the apostles and all of the other believers that came before us or will come after us in the person of the Gospel that is Jesus Christ. And this fellowship is not one of legalism or sinless perfection, lest we find ourselves to be liars. Nor is it one of lasciviousness, of saying God has no concern over our sin, lest we make Him a liar. But instead, it is based on a relationship of abiding in and therefore being sanctified by Christ. To be somewhere with the idea of being at rest. To be at home in Jesus. Abiding that is after the manner that Christ abided in His Father. An abiding that begins with the gift of love for Christ that comes from God alone is manifest in obedience to His commands as we walk in Him and proves that we are His disciples in order that Christ's joy might be in us. And when that relationship of abiding is realized, you will find that when we do sin, we have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteousness, literally who lives to intercede for us, who lives to get between us and the justice of God for He is the only mediator between God and men. And so tonight, continuing in 1 John chapter 2, we'll read verse 1 for good context. In verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now propitiation, I hope at this point, is something that we at Mount Zion are very familiar with. But just a quick review in case we're not, or in case someone else is listening online or at a later date, propitiation is the legal term, the technical means for which a debt is satisfied. This is how you make a debt no longer exist. Not simply that you paid it off, but it has gone away. We all know if you've ever had debt, man, when you make that last payment, it's not that you have a debt that's paid off, you have no debt. It dissolves. 
And to propitiate a debt requires some very specific circumstances. It requires the proper currency and the proper amount delivered to the proper place and at the proper time. And nothing else will do. If you have a debt here at the bank in Fort Smith or in Greenwood, uh, you can't propitiate that debt uh, with, uh, with Mexican pesos. It's got to be American dollars. You, you can't propitiate it if you don't have the right amount that you need. You can't propitiate it if you don't make the payment on time. And you cannot propitiate it by taking a bank note and trying to pay it at the gas station. The proper currency, the proper amount, the proper place, and the proper time. Propitiation is a very specific legal concept in the New Testament. It is tied to a very specific, broader legal concept in the Old Testament. And that is the concept of atonement. And propitiation and atonement are very closely related to each other, but they are not the same thing. As a matter of fact, as we're going to see, they're so closely related that when they're actually realized, the two cannot be separated from each other, but are part and partial to each other. And guys, I know that sounds like some kind of dry stuff, but it's actually very important that we understand. I mean, there's some things in Scripture that's neat to know because it's neat to know. It's all important, but, but some of the side stuff is neat to know because it's neat to know. But some stuff really has effect on sound doctrine and where we place our faith. And this is one of those concepts. Atonement means to cover over sin. Propitiation is the specific means by which atonement is accomplished. So, atonement is the broad concept. Propitiation is the specific, the specific execution for how it is accomplished. If atonement is to be actually realized, the two are inseparably linked. They are mutually inclusive. In Leviticus chapter 17, verses 11, on one of the most enlightening passages, and when people say Leviticus is boring, I always want to take them to Leviticus chapter 17, because right here you're going to see how Jesus Christ is going to end up saving your soul. But in Leviticus chapter 17, in verse 11, one of the most enlightening statements about the nature of atonement anywhere in Scripture, in verse 11, well, let's go to 10 for context. Um, Moses writes the words of the Lord and he says, If any one of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against the person who eats the blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So now we know a little something about the propitiation that is at hand if we're talking about canceling the, the debt of man's sin. The currency is lifeblood. Not just any blood, but lifeblood. The currency that is required of type and amount is the lifeblood of a man, Scripture says. We're not going to exegete it tonight. It's in Genesis. There's a blood-for-blood blood equivalence between men and Scripture. The lifeblood of an animal is not worth the lifeblood of a man, and the lifeblood of a man is only worth the lifeblood of one man. What it takes to pay your debt is your lifeblood, or the lifeblood of a single other substitute. The proper place that is to be remitted is on the mercy seat, not on the shadow and the copy that is on earth, but instead in the true and eternal temple in heaven at the proper time. The proper time was both roughly 29 A.D., or before the foundation of the world, or the fact that they're both at the exact same time, whichever you would like 
to consider, but that is for another night. You notice that the atonement is made, the covering over of the sin is made in a particular means by the life that's in the blood. That's propitiation. The means by which the covering is executed. If atonement is going to be realized, atonement and propitiation always go hand in hand. Because atonement that is not executed but is simply conceptual is not actually atonement and it doesn't actually save anyone. You can talk all day about going down there and paying off your debt, but you actually have to go do it for it to matter. So, that being the case, back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Man, we've got, if we do sin, we have an advocate, we have a mediator between us and God, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He's the advocate because He has made propitiation. He has paid that debt previous to your even owing it. And so it says that He is the propitiation of our sins. Amen. Amen. That is salvation, folks. That, that is the way you are saved. That is the way... Maybe, maybe, maybe that's a too broad of a statement. Because salvation includes a lot of things besides... Let me, let's say this. That is the way that the wrath of God is satisfied. That's how the wrath of God is satisfied. And if you stop right there with the first clause of chapter 2, verse 2, man, we could say amen and we could just keep right on trucking. But then John messes us up, man, and he says this, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now that is the way that that, um, that particular clause has been translated. Well, yeah, it's the way it's been written in Bibles historically. That's not exactly, that's not actually the exact translation. Um, the second statement about sins doesn't exist in the Greek. Instead, it would say He is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but also of the whole world. I don't think that really matters. It doesn't change the meaning. Either way, you either get sins in the second clause or it's referenced back on the first. It's pretty much the same thing. What do you do with this? Yes, we understand that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. But how in the world is Christ the propitiation for sins of the whole world? Because propitiation is the means by which atonement is accomplished. If you have propitiation, you have atonement. If you have atonement, you have the forgiveness of sin. If you have the forgiveness of sin, you have salvation. So what do you do with this? We've got a couple of options. You got a couple options. Most of them are horrifically wrong. I think there's one that historically has been approached that is right, and, and it's a little bit of a difficult thing to do. And so, so a lot of times I think it just gets avoided, and this is one of those verses that gets a stamp on it that says, well, God knows, and, uh, and we'll, we'll know when we see Him face to face. And, and amen to that, we will, but I think His Word gives us the answer for that now, so we don't have to wait to know. So how is it that Christ makes propitiation for the whole world? Okay, well, one of the first arguments that some will make is they will turn salvation upside down, and instead of saying that salvation is by grace through faith, they'll basically say that salvation is by faith 
through a universally available grace. And, and so basically what that argument says is this, is Christ has gone and He's made propitiation uh, for your debts. He has atoned for your sin. And it is up to you to, by faith, receive that atonement unto yourself. The problem with that is it fails consistently the Gospel. It fails the Gospel of John chapter 1 and verses 11-13 through 13, that says, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him, but all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. At the very beginning of the Gospel of John, when John is laying out by the Holy Spirit like the basic tenets of the faith that are going to underpin all of the rest of the narrative that is coming after it, he says, I want you to understand something. He said, salvation is not primarily by the choice of a man. Oh, it includes the choice of a man. But the right to become the children of God, the way they were born, was born according to God Himself. And he just drives this point home over and over and over and over through the Gospel of John with Jesus looking at the disciples and going, look, man, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Uh, you know, and one of you is the devil and I chose him too. And then later on in John chapter 17 when he's praying over them that have received his word, the manner in which they received it because it was from God and he had been effectual in them receiving it all the way down to the manner that those who would believe through their testimony would receive it, even me and you. It fails the concept of single propitiation out of the book of Hebrews. Guys, one of the most beautiful statements, and I know I say that a lot, it's my favorite, it's the greatest. Man, Scripture's got a lot of favorites and greatest. Amen. I don't even feel sorry for you know, the perceived contradiction there. Um, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, one of just the most enlighteningly beautiful statements about the propitiation and atonement that Christ makes for us as the high priest. It says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 that every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, just one, because He was not only fully man, which made Him the right currency, but He's also fully God, which means He is holy and infinite in value. What Jesus pays is so valuable, it would buy the lifeblood of as many men as He saw fit. Trillions upon trillions. You can't put a number on it. It cannot be expressed. His, his blood is of infinite value. And so He doesn't have to make propitiation every single time for every single one. He made it once for all. It says, for, but when Christ, in verse 12, had offered for, a sing, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He has perfected all those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put My laws on their hearts, write them on their minds. And then He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And then He says this, 
which is very pertinent for what we're talking about right now. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. <clears throat> Jesus Christ walked in to the temple in heaven, took His own lifeblood, placed it upon the eternal mercy seat, satisfied the wrath of God, made all atonement, made all propitiation that He was ever going to make, and after that, there is no more offering for sin. That was it. It was absolute. It was done. It was finished. He says so both on the front and the back. He made a single offering for all time. And having made it, not only did He sit down, but there no longer is an offering. That's it. Just like when you go to the bank, man. There's a payment when the payment occurs. And then the debt is gone and the payment's gone. It's done. It's over. The former things have passed away. Okay. What we don't have is salvation turned upside down. What you're not seeing, because this is the way it'll often be explained. Well, see, here's the deal. He made propitiation for sins of the whole world for every single person that ever lived, ever, in any time, in any place. And then it is up to them to somehow by faith have that propitiation applied to them. Now, there's a huge logical and, and grammatical failure there to begin with, seeing how propitiation is atonement applied. So it's like you've got to apply the application. Uh, it gets a little bit redundant. But man, there's a terrible issue. Scripture just says this is not the way it works. That it was all done in a moment of eternity. The other option, and one that we're more quickly uh, to dismiss, is the concept of universal salvation, right? Jesus made propitiation for the whole world, and having done that, everybody has their sin atoned for. Whether they have faith or not, whether they grew up in Papua New Guinea in 427 AD and didn't know anything but cannibalism and animism, uh, much less who Jesus Christ or even what a Jew uh, was, doesn't matter. He made atonement for the sins of the whole world and, and now that's done. Everyone, you know, all dogs go to heaven. It's actually a really good statement based off what Jesus said, I didn't come for the dogs, right? So they said, all dogs go to heaven. Jesus says, I ain't come for the dogs. You're going to have to become the lost sheep of Israel. Um, this fails not only just basically the entirety of Scripture, but it fails the immediate context. You have to do some real surgery here, just completely remove verse 2 from the rest of the chapter, because in the next breath, John says this in verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever, asks, whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him and whoever he says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The very next breath, John says, look, man, there are people that are his and people that aren't. Period. This isn't universalism. And so if it's not turning the gospel upside down, and if it's not universalism, then what is it? And here's what I would propose to you tonight. And this is, this is the only historical approach that I can find that goes all the way back to the Nicene Fathers that holds scriptural muster. 
the world in John chapter, and quite frankly, most of the time it's used. The world in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, is a non-inclusive version of the world. That is to say, the world does not mean every single person ever. And if we were to approach it from a Jewish context, that would become very clear to us. Consistently throughout Scripture, but particularly in the Gospel of John, we're running short on time tonight, so I'm just going to give one example. You see the term world being used as a non-inclusive. That means to say that when we say the whole world, we don't actually mean the whole world. This is a very common, this is a very common, you know, especially in Western languages, grammatical um, nuance. You know, this is like when somebody says, well, everybody's doing it. Well, no, everybody's probably not actually doing it. But that's the way we talk. And it speaks to, to a broadness that, that is real without being technical language that is absolute. Um, in John chapter 17, in verse 14, when Jesus is, is uh, praying uh, the high priestly prayer uh, before He suffers, uh, in John 17, verse 14, He is speaking about the nature of His disciples in the world. And in verse 14, He says this, I have given them Your Word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, there's no doubt that we can say amen to the fact that the world hates the people of Christ because the people of Christ are not of this world, but of the kingdom of heaven. But here he's speaking specifically about the disciples that are still alive. He's not praying for those that will come later yet. He's praying about these guys, and he says, Look, I gave them your word, and because they're not of the world, but in the world, the world hates them. Does that mean every single person on the whole planet hates those 11 men? Dude, only a drop in the bucket of the whole people on the planet even know who those 11 men are. But yet, there is some kind of overarch. It's not just the Jews that hate them. It's not just the Romans that hate them. It's not just some of the Greeks that in some, if there, there is some way that they are hated by the whole world. This is, I want you to know back, look real quick back in Hebrews chapter, chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, there is no doubt, this time we'll look still at the same verses, but I just want to focus on 12 through 14. There is specific propitiation in Jesus Christ. That is to say that His propitiation is to a very select group in verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He is perfected for all time a very specific group of people. For a single offering, He is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, if you go back to Romans chapter 8 and look at the progression of salvation that starts with the, the intimacy, the foreknowledge of God, the love that God has for His people, 
in eternity that moves to His predestination. Then it moves to the call, which is the first time we're aware of what is going on. It's happening in our timeline. And the call moves to justification. And the justification moves to sanctification. It's the last stop in the chain of salvation before you end at glorification. Man, if you're being sanctified, you have been justified, you have been called, you have been predestined because you were foreknown. And you will be glorified. If we're talking about those that are being sanctified, that by this one offering He perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified, then the fact of the matter is the propitiation that was made in that single offering is specifically for the saved. Because no one's being sanctified except for the saved. See all that says. The Gospel of John is the answer to the first letter of John. Look in the Gospel of John in chapter 4. I know this is a pretty studious group tonight, so I'll let you I'll make the connections quickly and, and then you can ponder them in your own time. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 4, verses 39-42, we see the very tail end of the narrative of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, Jesus comes and says He has to go to Samaria. Remember that? It, but before this narrative starts, it says that Jesus was going to Galilee and He had to go to Samaria. Which is crazy because Samaria is like, you have to shoot past Galilee, keep on going for a good ways and then hook it around and come back, right? So he didn't have to go there like it's the only way, you know, it's like the only physical path. You know, it's, it's like, well, you know, i got to go through Crawford County. No, it's not like that. Like, you know, you, he had to go there because it was ordained that he would be there. And so he goes, and, and the disciples go into town to get something to eat, and there's a woman that comes out to draw water, and, and, um, and, uh, and, and she, um, he asked her for water, and, and She's like, what are you, a Jew, doing talking to me, a Samaritan? And he says, you know, woman, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for water, uh, and I'll give you water that you'll never thirst again. And she says, oh, give me this water so I don't have to come down here and draw every day. I mean, human beings, we are dumb. I wonder when we get to heaven and really see it face to face, how foolish we're all going to feel like, oh, man. Okay, so he's like, this is not what I'm talking about. And so they start getting, he starts showing her he's a prophet, and man, he's reading her mail and talking about all the nefarious stuff she's been doing. And she says, I perceive you're a prophet. And now she starts to get real standoffish because she doesn't want to put his finger on her. And she says, you know, how do we know where to worship? I mean, our father said you worship on this mountain. You Jews said you worship down there. And he makes the statement. He says, you know, the, the, the time is coming and is here when the true worshipers of God will worship in spirit and in truth. And she says, we know the Messiah comes and, and he will reconcile all things. And he says, I'm him. I'm him. Well, there's a lot that goes on. There, she runs back to town. She starts telling everybody. In verse 39, in verse 39, it says, Many from that town, many Samaritans from that town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to them, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. So there was a lot that believed because of her testimony. Great. They come to him. He starts teaching. And then more start believing because of what he's saying. And they said to the woman, 
it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. If you're going to understand that statement, you have to understand the absolute cultural and racial divide that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews not only considered the Samaritans to be Gentile dogs, they considered them to be the worst of Gentile dogs. Because they weren't purebred Gentile dogs. In the Jews' mind, they were sellout mutts. Former children of Israel who had culturally raised up these two golden calves in Dan and Beersheba and said, This, O Israel, is thy God that led you out of Egypt. They had turned their backs on Yahweh. They had turned their backs on the house of David. They had turned their backs on the promise of God and God destroyed them for it. And if they had not brought their apostasy far enough when God brought in the Assyrians, literally some of the most barbaric people that have ever roamed this planet to destroy them, the ones that lived said, hey, we like you and we like your gods. We're going to join up with you. And that's how you got the Samaritans. They thought they were trash. And when the Jews spoke of anyone other than themselves, they were the bait. They were the family. They were Israel. They were the set-apart portion of God. And everything else was Gentile, which we take that to mean non-Jew, but in the original context, it just meant the nations. It meant all the rest of the world. Which is why these people, being very familiar with that, said, we have seen, and here's this argument, man, do you worship on this mountain? Do you worship on that mountain? Jesus shows up and says, man, things are changing. It ain't about what mountain it's on. It's about the fact that the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. She says, we know when the Messiah comes, He'll reconcile all things. He says, I'm Him, and salvation is from the Jews. And these people believe Him and then go, salvation is from the Jews. He's the Messiah. He's the Messiah of the Jews, but His salvation isn't just to Jews because it's already come to us. He is the Savior of the whole world. It's the same thing that Jesus is discussing with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Did, did God so love every person in the world that, that He would send His Son so that they would not perish but have eternal life? No, God so loved the world so that whoever was those that believe would not perish out of the world but have eternal life. If it was the entirety of the world that was in view, every single person, every single man, every single woman, every single child, then God failed in Judas's proof. But that's not what He's talking about. He's talking about everyone who believes. 
who he already qualified in John chapter 1 as believing not according to the will of men, but according to the will of God. Guys, I know I've been called the context police, but that right there is why context is important. If you're going to understand what John chapter 3.16 says, you have to understand what John chapter 1 says. Once again, what is in view here is not the salvation of all when speaking of the world. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. They are because He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. John chapter 4, John chapter 3, the world that is being spoken of does not mean every single human being ever alive. The world that is being spoken of, if you're a Jewish Pharisee asking the Messiah who came not only to save Jews but to save Samaritans and Greeks and random European Gentile nuts like me, the world means not just us. But everyone, a group that is not inclusive of the whole world, but that is inclusive of all peoples, a group that is spoken of in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Guys, it is not a big deal today that salvation, it's not a big deal to us that, that Gentiles are being saved. The reality was is it was shocking to them. Paul says it was the mystery hidden in ages past that the Gospel has also come to the Gentiles. It was mind-blowing. Peter, when he gets the call of God, walks into Cornelius' house, says, I've never even been across the threshold of a Gentile's house in my life and the only reason I'm here is because God Himself told me to. I know we're out of time. We got started a little late, but we're out of time. I do want to say this though, because this is this is cool. When he says that he he's the propitiation for our sins, here's this Jewish apostle, one of the sons of thunder. It wasn't just for ours. It wasn't just for the disciples. It wasn't just for those people in first century Jerusalem who believed. But he was the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. I mean, he's writing this, most people think, from Ephesus, which is a predominantly Gentile city. It wasn't just for ours, it was for the whole world. And there will be those from every tribe, language, and nation. And yet, there is a manner, and it is a manner and a testimony, that there is a manner in which Christ, quote-unquote, saves the whole world. It is not an eternal salvation, but it is spoken of in 1 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 10. Actually, let's back up to verse 7. Give it a little context. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 
For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Okay, now, you cannot do here, you have to be exegetically honest, you cannot do with 1 Timothy what is so evidently being done in the Gospel and the Epistles of John. Because there we're not talking about the salvation of the whole world in the same manner that the apostles are being saved. It's what we're looking at in John. So the whole world doesn't mean every single man, woman, and child. It means not just the Jews, but someone from every tribe, language, and nation. Here, the opposite is occurring. He says that there is a general salvation for all people and there's a special salvation for those who believe. We know what the special salvation for those that believe is. It's eternal life. So what is this general way that Jesus Christ saves the whole world? Well, it's not the same. It's not, here's what we can't say. It's not the salvation that those who believe have. What is it? Well, at this point in time, I think, I saved it for last because I think we have to step into the realm of opinion, but this is opinion that is held by men that are a lot smarter than I. If you look back to the garden and the statement that on the day you eat this, you shall surely die. And then, immediately after the fall of man, the statement by God about the curse that was coming and the promise of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, crushing the head of the serpent. The only thing that I can find in Scripture that checks the hand of God from the immediate annihilation of mankind is because over the course of time from every tribe, language, and nation, there will be those especially saved who believe. And guys, it, 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 is, it, is a, it is smoke and shadow compared to the eternal life in Jesus Christ. But the fact of the matter is God is even <coughs> gracious to sinners that will never see His salvation and will never bow the knee willingly before Him. He is gracious to even those that struggled as Jesus Christ was being crucified. He was being gracious to those that were doing the crucifying and would never believe. For if it was not for His purpose in salvation, there would have been no point in allowing them to continue. And I guarantee you, when the day of wrath comes, those men, though never grateful, will look back with fond memory of the days they got to toil underneath His Son with the wind on their face because He allowed them to continue on behalf of His people. That's all i got for tonight. I'm way long. I apologize. Um, but uh, man, chapter 2, verse 2 is heavy, heavy stuff. Um, Jason, why don't you pray for us, man?